How do you know what someone loves or is interested in? And you think of some clues that you get from people to identify what they love and what they're interested in. Uh, here are some examples. Uh, they're not the only ones, but here are some. You notice what someone likes or is interested in uh, by noticing what they talk about and what they bring the conversation often to, regardless of what you are talking to them about. What subjects are brought often in conversation? Uh, let me give you an example, especially these days. It is not uncommon to have a growing number of people among us uh, bring up the subject of politics. Somehow, people, uh, if they care deeply about politics, whether right now if they're happy about it or if they're unhappy about it, somehow the subject of politics seems to seep into every conversation. You also know, uh, you can, can see what a person cares about uh, when you notice what concerns them. When things we care about don't go well, uh, it has a way of, of troubling us. And it, it comes out one way or another. Uh, the opposite is also true. Have you noticed the things that we don't care about very deeply, if they go wrong, they just have a way of not troubling us very much. Uh, things we care less about cause us less concern when they don't go well. Well, I have a question for you this morning. What does Jesus care about? And how do we know it? In Revelation, as we begin working through this book, and we have just finished chapter 1 um, in the previous three Sundays, as we go into chapter 2 of the book of Revelation, we realize quickly that Jesus is concerned and preoccupied with the life of local churches. Now, even while Jesus was on earth, he told us that he will build his church. You remember the conversation that he and Peter had? Uh, at one point, Peter confesses Jesus uh, as being the Messiah, the anointed one. And Jesus turns back to Peter and says, On this rock, on, on this confession, I will build my church. Jesus has been giving us clues that he is interested to build up his church. And here in the book of Revelation, we see Jesus, the exalted one, tending to his churches, caring for them, correcting them when necessary, guiding them so they can be conquerors. When Jesus sees his churches in trouble, he comes alongside to help them think through the troubles they're experiencing. Whether they are positive troubles or negative troubles. Well, this morning, I would like for us to uh, look at the theme that Jesus is all about the local church. And we will see this theme uh, playing out in chapters 2 and 3 in particular. But as, but as we will look at the rest of the book of Revelation, the entire book of Revelation is given and written uh, for the churches. So this morning, I invite you to open God's Word to the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 2. And I have to make a confession to you as we begin working through this. Um, I was aiming to do one sermon on the entire chapter 2. And uh, the notes for the sermon this morning are 15 pages. Uh, so I will cut this in two, and we will only do the first half of it, and we will leave the second half of chapter 2 for next week. 
Uh, Here's God's word uh, for us this morning. Book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, Repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Amen. Let's pray for the preaching of God's Word and for our hearts. Father in heaven, we praise you for the Word that you have revealed to us, which you have given to Jesus Christ, which he has passed on to John and which has been passed on to us through the Scriptures. As we hear the Word of Christ as a congregation, Lord, we pray that you would make us attentive. Make us attentive to hear well the things that concern Jesus about the church. Father, help us that those concerns would be ours as well for the sake of Christ, for his testimony, for his glory and honor. In his name we pray. Amen. The fact that the book of Revelation opens with seven messages that Christ writes to each of the seven churches identified in this book shows us the deep care that Jesus has for these seven local churches. The fact that these seven messages are customized shows us Jesus' individual knowledge of each church and shows us that Jesus wants to address each church in light of what they needed to hear and address most. You know when you write a 
a New Year's greeting to your friends, and you just do a, a list greeting, a list message, a list email, or a list text, you just send one thing to all your friends, Jesus could have written one, one message to all of them and just let them all have it and enjoy it. It would have been more efficient in some ways, we might think. But no, Jesus takes the time to think carefully about the personality, about the strengths, about the weaknesses that each church in these seven uh, churches, what each church has. Jesus takes time to evaluate. Jesus takes time to speak to each of them directly. Now, we should not assume that only each of the seven messages are addressed for each of the seven churches, as if uh, the church to the message to Ephesus is only for the church in Ephesus, and the church in Ephesus is supposed to take only the message to the church in Ephesus. That's not the way this works. This letter of Revelation is a circular letter, which means it was one letter, and even though it's introduced by seven customized messages to each of the seven churches, each of the seven churches was supposed to read all the seven messages and the entire book of Revelation. If we turn to the last chapter of the book, Jesus says the following in chapter 22, verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. In other words, the entire book of Revelation is, is for the churches. The entire book of Revelation is for all the seven churches and for all the churches as well. The me- customized message about each church and the fact that the entire book of, Re- of Revelation is, is written for the churches shows how deeply Jesus cares about the local church. He cared deeply about them that he was going to address them individually. So let's look at each of these uh, letters. We're going to just cover two of them this morning from chapter 2. And uh, as we begin looking at these churches, we're going to notice what Jesus appreciates, encourages them them in, and also what Jesus corrects, what Jesus wants to see them do different, what, what Jesus is deeply concerned about in some of these churches. Let's look at the first two, the one in Ephesus and the church in Smyrna. What Jesus finds as important, what Jesus finds as a big deal in the life of these churches, here's the two ones we're going to cover this morning. First one is a renewed love. A renewed love. The first church Christ addresses as he begins talking and addressing each of the seven churches is the church in Ephesus. In all of Asia Minor, Ephesus was the largest of the cities. It was a transit city since it was the meeting point of three major highways that connected the Roman Empire, particularly Rome, to the eastern part of the empire. Ephesus was considered one of the four most powerful cities in the Roman Empire, according to one Bible interpreter. Uh, Paul spent, well, we know it, Paul spent two years shepherding this congregation. We hear that in Acts 19. And he even wrote them a letter, which is part of the New Testament, the letter to Uh, the Ephesians. And now, this church from Ephesus, they get another letter. This time from Christ. When Christ writes to the church in Ephesus, he describes himself as holding the seven stars in his right hand and walking in the midst of the seven lampstands. In other words, Christ reminds the church in Ephesus that he holds the right 
to govern these churches. These churches are in Christ's hand. And after introducing himself, Christ goes on to tell us the things that this church is doing well. Now look at verse 2 and 3. Christ says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. These are great things to hear. These are great things for a church to be able to experience. Toiling, patient endurance, discernment in exposing false teachers. These are aspects every church should pursue. These are aspects that some of the other churches are not doing well, as we will see later. The work of being a church is not an easy work. It's not necessarily a comfortable work, although we try to make it as, as encouraging as possible. But being a church takes toiling. And, and Christ, Christ appreciates a church in Ephesus and commends them for, for being a church that is doing well in toiling. It was an active church. The church in Ephesus was also practicing patient endurance. Uh, the same quality that John spoke about when he described himself. In other words, this church in Ephesus was not easily discouraged, nor easily intimidated. They were ready to plow through. They were ready to, to stay the course. They also took seriously the need to discern what was being taught among them. Oh my goodness, what, a, what an important qualification. Uh, now remember what the Apostle Paul, after he left Asia Minor, in the book of Acts, chapter 19, he called the elders. You know which elders he called to him? It was the elders of the church in Ephesus. And he called them and gave him a specific instruction, a very specific warning. In Acts 20, verse 19, Paul said to them, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. This was a warning that the Apostle Paul gave them. A few decades later, when Christ writes them a church, uh, this message, Christ applauds them for doing well in the thing that the Apostle Paul warned them about a few decades earlier. This is a wonderful church to be in. They're doing a number of things really well. But there's an area of neglect that is so significant in this congregation that it leads Christ to threaten them to come and take their lampstand from them. And this threat literally would mean if the lampstands in the book of, in chapter 1 uh, symbolize the church, Christ walking among the lampstands, now threatening the very first church he's addressing in this major city, that he will come and take from them the lampstand, it was a threat that Christ is taking from them the authority to be his church. It was a threat that Christ is taking from them the credentials of being a church. And you may say, 
What is it so significant that this church is failing to experience and to have that would threaten, that would lead Christ to bring them such a serious threat? And the threat is this. They have neglected and even abandoned the love they had at first. This is what Christ exposes in them as needing immediate uh, uh, correction. He says, verse 4, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, there's a few things about just this very sentence that I want us to unpack briefly. This means that, first of all, becoming a Christian affects us in a number of ways. But one of the key changes that should take place in us as we become Christians, one of the first experiences, changes that should that we should have in our own inner lives as we become Christians is that we begin having a new love for God. A new love for God is manifested through a love for His Word, for His commandments, and through a love for His people. Friends, becoming a Christian is experiencing a new love for God. That's why if you're not a Christian this morning, and you might think that uh, being being in church or attending church or attending a religious service at least once in a while may, may make you right with God. Friends, if there is no love in your heart for God or for His things, friends, that is, a, that is a good enough reason for you to wonder, has my heart been changed? Because one of the first fruits, not the only fruit, but one of the first fruits of, of our salvation, of our new birth, of, of a change of heart inside of us, is that God pours in our hearts through His Spirit love. Love for Him. Love for His Word. Love for His people. And the church of Ephesus was fixed on protecting the truth. They were fixed on and, and determined and committed to stay the course. They were not going to give up. But they were neglecting the love that they had at first towards the Lord. And what Christ suggests moving forward for them is in verse 5, the following. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. What is the love that these Christians have abandoned? It's a love that they had at first, which apparently now they no longer show evidence of having. Well, what is that love? The solution that Christ gives them gives us a clue. Notice that Christ says to them, remember, repent, and then do. Do what? Do the works that you did at first. The solution suggests that the love they lacked was not mere feelings or sentimentalism. Jesus is not saying here, get excited about Jesus again. Let's just... Let's just throw a party and just be filled with enthusiasm for Jesus again. Friends, such sentimentality doesn't last very long. Oftentimes, if we we gauge our love for God just based on feelings alone, oh, friends, feelings alone go through ups and downs. Notice what is involved in returning to the love they had at first. It's a doing the works you did at first. The solution is gives us a clue that the love they'd had at first was a love that led them to a change of actions, change of behavior. Their life and actions were showing off their new love for God. 
in the Gospel of John, Jesus made it very clear that love for God is seen in love for His commandments, in a life of joyful obedience to God. Oh, friends, it is possible, it is very possible, to be interested in protecting the truth, yet not to be interested in living it out. It's, in, it's possible to be interested in, in getting deep into debates of theological nature, and yet not be concerned how that truth is applied to our hearts and how we live it out. The church in Ephesus may have been theologically very sharp, but it did not translate into a life of obedience that characterized love for God. Friends, when we have an obedience problem, we have a love problem. When our lives, when our actions, when our choices do not reflect uh, God's desires, God's priorities, it's a sign of having a love problem. Part of cultivating our love is to look in our life and see how your love for the Lord leads you to act differently than if you loved yourself. Examine yourself and see what are the things you do in your life that are coming out of and motivated by love for God. Cultivate your love for God not only by examining your affections and your heart, but also examining your works, your choices, your way of life. But love for God is also manifested, dear friends, in how we love one another. Because Christ himself commanded us to love one another. It's possible for someone to love the truth, to be interested in theological precision, to be interested in doctrinal debates, and yet not be interested to show love for one's fellow brothers and sisters. Friends, if we love theology and doctrinal accuracy, but we're not interested to help a member in need, or if we're not interested to reach out and find out what someone else is going through and how we can be praying for them and, and coming alongside them, oh, friends, that truth has little effect on our actions. And that is a problem. Love is shown in actions of care, in actions of concern, in actions of service, in actions of forgiveness, in actions of self-sacrifice. We devote one, to loving one another as we seek to open our lives to others. Friends, have you realized that it's hard to love someone else if you don't open up to them? If you don't even just pick up the, the phone to give them a call and see, how are you doing? What's going on with you? How can I be praying for you? Or I haven't seen you in a while. I'd love to catch up with you. Friends, if you like to live your Christian life as a, as a lone ranger Christian, you just come to church, arrive right before the service begins, and then leave out immediately after. And you don't take any initiative throughout the week at some point to seek to reach out to others and open up your heart to others. It's hard to understand what you mean that you love God when you're not even able and open to open up your life and loving others. It takes time. It takes toiling to love other people well. But the love for the Lord needs to be cultivated and protected as we seek to love His Word and as we seek to love His people. There are many things that can choke out our love for one another. Neglect the fellowship with the Lord and neglect the fellowship with His people. You remember Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. The, the apostle who writes the, uh, the book of Hebrews says, And let us consider how to stir up one another 
to what? To love and good works, not neglecting to meet up together as is a habit of some, but encouraging one another as all the more and all the more as we see the day drawing near. Friends, even our gathering as a church, when we gather every Sunday morning, we gather to hear God's word. We gather to worship the Lord together. But one of the things we gather for is not simply that we might be consumers of a church service, not merely to gain insight into the biblical knowledge of a book of Revelation, for instance, but have you considered that when we gather, we are to stir one another up, to encourage one another to love and to good deeds? Do the conversations you talk about with people after church, whether it's at lunch or, or after the service, do, they, do you talk about what's going on in your lives so that you can encourage one another to more love and good works? Well, friends, love is an essential part of what it means to be a church. And to live like a church is to grow in love. Friends, protecting the truth of the gospel should also uh, protect our love. But sadly, sadly, it is possible that interest in the truth can often grow by itself, forgetting to cultivate love. Do you remember the church in Corinth? The Apostle Paul writes to them, and he says, Oh, you Corinthians, you have been so gifted with all the spiritual gifts. You have them all. But he shides them. He rebukes them for lacking love. And one of the most important chapters in, in the New Testament on the importance of love, love, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, If I have knowledge to speak like angels... If I had ability to move mountains, but if I have, if I lack love, I am nothing. Oh, friends, how easy it is for us to be busy with stuff, to be, to be toiling, to be active in various ways, even in the life of the church, and yet it may be motivated by something other than love. It may be motivated because we feel like that's what's going to gain us more brownie points with God. Some people might be motivated to toiling and being active and busy out of competition. Some people might be busy or, or toiling out of selfish ambition, but not out of love. Ask yourself, dear friends, how are you doing in the area of cultivating love? Do you have more love now than you had at first? Or if you look at your life, could it be said of you that there was more love in your life, in your heart at the beginning? than it is now? If that's you, oh my dear friend, I pray that you would, you would hear the, the, the serious warning that Christ gives to the church in Ephesus and to all of us. Remember how John began this letter in describing Christ when he described and praised Christ in 1.5. He said, To him who loves us, to fall from the love they had at first is so serious that Christ says, I'm coming. I'm coming to take your credentials of being a church. I wonder how many churches are still meeting today. They're still gathering regularly. They're still giving financially. They still might be very active in their community and doing and loving uh, and doing what they like doing, but they have abandoned their love for God. Churches can do a lot of ministry out of selfish ambition and out of competition. Uh, churches can do a lot of things to, to pride themselves in what they have and what they're doing. And we see that in the, in the, later in Laodicea. 
these churches are no longer a place that puts on display the love of God. They just want to put on display their name, their reputation. Well, friends, I wonder how many churches can still go on without having Christ's credential of being a church. Yet there's a, l- a glimmer of hope in this, in, this, in this church in Ephesus. Christ says to them in verse 6, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now this is an important clue for what it means to return the first love. Understanding what love is. Uh, we, we don't know very much about who the Nicolaitans were. We're gonna, they show up again a little later and we're going to look at them a little later. But here... Loving God means loving what God loves and hating what God hates. Love well means aligning our love to what God loves. The Nicolaitans, since they show up again, we'll we'll deal with them later. But here Christ calls the church and commends the church for hating the works of the Nicolaitans. Now you might say, wait a minute, I thought Jesus is just calling this church to return to the love they had at first. And now in the very next verse, he's calling or commending them for hating the works of the Nicolaitans. Isn't love and hate opposite? Well, friends, our society wants us to define love as accepting you as you are and letting you be as you are and not, not calling out what is wrong. But God's love is different. God accepts us to come to him as we are, so that, we can, so that He can change us as He is, so that we can love what He loves and hate what He hates. Jesus warned us while He was on earth that in the last days, the love of many will grow cold. Apparently, the church in Ephesus fell in this trap. And this is not supposed to be the norm. Jesus will not accept a church who is growing cold in its love. But the call to love is a call that does not cancel out the need to discern what is truth. This is not a call that Jesus gives the Ephesians to give up discerning the truth and, and discerning false teaching, but to, commend, to, uh, to, to su- supplement that and to motivate that with a heart, with a heart that is filled up by the love of God. The call to repentance is followed with a wonderful promise. Verse 7, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The call to conquer involves heeding the specific call to repent of growing cold in our love for God. But Notice the call to return to the first love, which, have, which ought to produce in us a new obedience to God, is followed by the promise that was first lost after the time of the first disobedience. The Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they were cast out of the paradise of God so that no one could be able to eat of the tree of life. Now at the beginning of Revelation, God promises that those who conquer will be given the right that was taken away from them in Eden, eating the tree of life. It is sweet Uh, to see how God calls the church in Ephesus to return to the love they had at first and promises them access that Adam and Eve had lost when they first disobeyed God. Friends, it's not our love for God 
that earns our access to the tree of life. We want to be very sure that no one walks away with the impression that somehow you must muster up in you this, this love for God. And if you have enough of it, that somehow that will give you the right to access the tree of life. Oh, no, friends. It is the blood of Jesus. It is only by the blood of Jesus that our sins can be free, that we can be freed from our sins, so that it is out of that that we are given the right to access a tree of life. But here, John wants a church in Ephesus to recognize that being freed from our sins, that being made right with God, should produce in us the fruit of love for God and for His people. The second message that Christ writes in this book is to the church in Smyrna. If the church in Ephesus needed to be encouraged uh, to have a renewed love, the church in Smyrna was at the other spectrum of of the experience. They needed to be encouraged to have a readiness to suffer. A readiness to suffer. This is a the second point that, that, that Christ cares for the church. The church in Smyrna was a very different situation than Ephesus, even though not very far from each other. Christ says the following about them in verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Even though this congregation experienced trouble and uh, poverty, Christ tells them, you are actually rich. Christ identifies their troubles as coming from those who uh, slander them, those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Uh, In other words, the Christians in Smyrna were likely suffering troubles from the Jewish hatred in the city. Uh, For the Jewish people to trouble the followers of Christ meant that they were, that now the followers of Christ were no longer enjoying uh, the protection that the Roman Empire gave the Jewish people. You see, the Romans uh, made a, an allowance that the Jewish people were the only ones they would allow to worship only one God. So the Jews enjoyed this, this benefit from, from the Roman authorities. Uh, but when followers of Christ uh, began experiencing troubles from the Jews, the Jews denounced them to the Romans and said, Oh, these are not Jews. So the Romans now come and demand that the Gentile believers... Um, uh, would begin worshiping the, the Roman gods. And if they don't, they would, they would lose some of their possessions. They would lose some of the advantages, um, some of the, perhaps, the promotion, some of the business. Why? Because now the Romans were inflicting, the, the Roman society would inflict on them the, 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 the expectations that every citizen of a Roman empire would have. So Christ says that, the, that they're experiencing slander from those who call themselves Jews but are not. Amazingly, Christ even says that they are a synagogue of Satan. This is harsh language. This is harsh language because though through their hatred of Christ's followers, these Jewish folks were showing that they're acting out the agenda of Satan himself. And the agenda of Satan in the book of Revelation in chapter 12 is that Satan as a dragon comes after the followers of Christ to pursue them and to persecute them. So when, when John sees that these Christians in Smyrna were having trouble caused by the Jewish synagogue, Christ has no problem to call them the synagogue of Satan. Why? 
Because they are acting as Satan's agents in pursuing the people of God, the followers of Christ. Not only is Christ calling the church in Smyrna that they are rich, but um, they, the, the church in Smyrna, along with one other church, is the, are the only two churches that receive no correction of these seven churches. Of the seven, five receive uh, rebukes and corrections. Smyrna is one of the two that does not. And what Christ suggests to the church in Smyrna moving forward is very telling, dear friends. And even if we don't experience persecution right now, not in the way that the church in Smyrna was experiencing, what Christ says to them is so instructive for our own hearts. Listen to verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested And for ten days you have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. It's amazing what Christ promises to them and what Christ doesn't promise them. Here's what Christ does not promise them. Christ is not saying, I will come to you and rescue you from the Romans. I will come and rescue you from those who are going to throw you in prison. I will send my angels to open the doors to get you out of the prison. And we know God is able to do that. He has done it with Peter before. It would not be a problem for the Lord to do that. It's surprising, though, that that is not what Jesus does and says to comfort this congregation. Instead, Christ's comfort is quite unintuitive at first. He says, be ready suffer. Be ready to suffer. This doesn't sound very comforting, is it? Christ tells them not to be afraid. Why not be afraid? Not because they will escape the suffering. Christ tells them not to be afraid in the suffering that they will endure. Christ even tells them to stay on track in suffering even to the point of death. What Christ offers is not the protection from suffering and death. But instead, Christ offers the crown of life. Smyrna understood this image very well. Smyrna was known in the Asian minor region as a place that hosted many games in its city. And at the, every, at the end of every competition, at the end of every game, The winner, if it was just one winner or a team of winners, would be receiving garlands or crowns that would identify them as the the winners of the competition. Smyrna understood very well the the joy that comes with, with finishing the line, crossing the finish line, not as a loser, but as a winner. And here Christ uses this imagery that the church in Smyrna knew well, that the city of Smyrna understood well and, and applies to the church and says, listen, church, suffer well to the end. Cross the finish line. Be faithful unto me through suffering, even to the point of death. And when you have crossed that line, I will give you a crown. It's not going to be a crown that fades. It's not a crown of gold. It's a crown of life. The one who conquers, Christ says, 
one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And this is the key. Christ is saying, in other words, dying is not the end. Dying is not losing. Be willing to die. What hurts you is not the first death, but the second death. And in verse 11, the Spirit says, The one who conquers will not be hurt by what? Not by the first death, but by the second. In the eyes of Jesus, the first death does not, does not hurt us. That's why Jesus doesn't, doesn't offer to come and prolong our earthly lives here on earth. Oh, friends, for so many of us, it may feel like, like the biggest race in this life is to prolong our life here on earth. Oh, friends, conquering means not cheating death, but be willing to face it for the sake of Christ. We live in a day and age when people would do anything to escape their first death, but give no thought of escaping their second death. Oh, friends, are you that person this morning? Have you given thought of how you can escape the second death? I love the quote of that I've heard once before. I think I've used it here, but it's good to remember. If you die once, no, if you're born once, you die twice. If you are born twice, you die once. Those who are born from above, those who are born from the Spirit, by the Spirit, through the proclamation of the gospel, those who repent and trust in Christ for their lives experience a second birth that protects them from the second death. Christ encourages believers in Smyrna to be willing to face death for the sake of Christ because through that, they cross the finish line and receive the crown of life. Oh, friends, one of the messages that the book of Revelation will remind us of over and over again is that Christ is worth dying for. What he gives us on the other side of suffering and death is worth enduring for and waiting for, the crown of life. Friends, I wonder what crown are you waiting to receive? What crown are you racing for in this life? Is it the crown of easy retirement? Of an easier life? Of, a, of, a, of earthly joys merely? Of satisfaction here and now? How much... Have you set your hope on the crown of life that Christ promises to those who finish well, even at the price of dying for Christ? Notice how in these two churches, in the church in Ephesus and the church of Smyrna, what Christ cares for deeply is that they have a renewed love for God and a readiness to suffer for Him. I wonder if these are things that we care about as we think about our life together as a church, as we encourage one another, as we gather weekly to encourage and to spur one another, I wonder if we encourage one another to more love and more readiness to suffer. Friends, may Christ find us as a congregation where he can commend these truths among us. May we be a faithful witness so that indeed Christ would be pleased with us. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father in heaven, We thank you and praise you for the revelation of Jesus Christ. We praise you for the care that he gives for each individual church. And Lord, we know that even we as a congregation, as a congregation here at Park Hills Baptist Church, we 
we are under the care of Christ. We pray that through His Word, these words would minister to our own hearts so that we, be, we would be churches that Christ continues to uphold, that Christ continues to sustain, that Christ continues to fuel. Oh, Lord, we pray that we would care for what Christ cares, that we would be concerned about what Christ is concerned about. Father, we pray that our selfish uh, and our, our self-centered uh, concerns or desires would be laid aside and that we would prioritize the concerns that Christ has for the church. We pray that we may honor you through our life together as a congregation. In the name of Jesus, we pray.